So I believe as anything in the world, any story we are having around has the beginning and the end. And that's something the most founders don't realize, you know, like the life's going in loops and circles and you've got to be ready for opportunities. And one of the opportunities as well in the startup world and startup life, I would say, is the end of the story. So this is Daniel Hastick investment partner at Next Tech Ventures. It's not about they don't think about it, but they don't realize uh, that actually there will be some kind of the end of the story, either handing over the company to, you know, professional CEO or your family, you know, um, ancestors or actually merging with bigger uh, entity or actually shutting it down um, in terms of any reason running out of the money or you know having problems in the team rather than focusing on the beginning of the startup daniel focuses on the importance of looking ahead to the end of your venture it's an area that very few founders consider and the ecosystem does not talk about and it's actually one of the topics i uh, recently focusing trying to explain the founders kind of skill set it takes uh, to be ready for this particular you know next step in the and uh, startup life. So you might be thinking, I thought you wanted me to succeed in my startup. Well, we do. And that is why it is important to consider the whole life cycle of your startup, beginning all through to the end. In this episode, I'll be demonstrating with Daniel while considering the end of your startup is just as important as the steps you take to begin. This is Savvy with Sparring, where we talk to founders, investors, and people in the startup ecosystem about entrepreneurship and getting a business off the ground. I'm Annabelle Pemberton, Legal Mind at Sparring, and I'll be guiding you through how business and law mesh together. So I'm one of the founding partners of a VC fund based in Prague, Next Ventures. And I'm responsible for the whole due diligence, scouting, and program, which we called Entrepreneurs and Residents. And internally, I call it like uh, all the brother for all the founders. Next Tech Ventures is a venture capital based in Prague, who provide funding, advisory, and an entrepreneur in residence support. Like Sparring, they don't just provide the standard services of a VC but also assistance on the ground for entrepreneurs. We are going through the deals together, making the decisions together. As soon as the, we do an investment, then I'm the one responsible for taking the company further uh, in terms of, let's say, controlling, reporting, overlooking operations, and uh, hopefully making the next step, which is either you know, funding or merger or some kind of uh, acquisition. So there are scouts who do you know, say for the investors and kind of getting an initial or a series A financing. What I would love to build here is actually the scouts who are on the other side of the story. A scout is a person who makes small investments in startups on behalf of a VC fund. They do this without requiring much involvement from the rest of the team and sometimes with full decision autonomy. The check size is smaller and the companies are at an earlier stage than the main fund. The goal is that the scout investments will grow to become investments for the main fund. But like we mentioned, Daniel has a focus on the end of the startup lifecycle. What I find out after years of experience in building relationships and companies is that it's very good to think of 
building company as a Lego, you know, from the bricks which kind of falls into each other in a seamless way. And therefore, there are very strong foundations and you can build anything instead of creating, you know, the bricks yourself and trying to kind of learn everything at once. And the same thing, I think, is valid for the acquisition and joint ventures that you have to really know uh, why you're selling it, what are you selling, and what is the complement, you know, takeaway or, let's say, uh, output out of the out of the cell, except of the price, you know? Um, because if you skim just the price, then you maybe forgot about the people and when you would be building another company, they, they will not go with you because they would remember that you actually throw them away, you know, from the, from the ship and you take everything what you can and run away. When you are starting out, what are the questions you should consider? Well, the first is, do I need a partner to join me on this journey? I think the most important one is to finding out that actually for any story, you need a partner to go with. You know, you can be much stronger if you have somebody next to you, either if it's an investor or, you know, partner company or some kind of a distribution channel or exclusive licensing, somebody bigger in, in that particular domain or technology. The second question is whether the startup will suit your future lifestyle or goals. Life is unpredictable and you might not know your plans for next week, let alone one or even five years ahead. But considering the hypothetical question and possibilities before they happen can help make the end of your startup journey, whether that's the closure of your startup or a successful exit, easier. And the second thing uh, is that realizing actually the topic you are building might not be feasible to you in your own, let's say, lifestyle in a few years. So you're running out of ideas or you just change the complete, you know, lifestyle or it's not important for you anymore to sell clothes online, whatever you are building, you know, empire of e-commerce. And sometimes these things came at once. And if you don't realize it soon enough, then actually you are not able to solve it soon enough because like anything else, investing is about opportunities and timing, right? So the opportunity for the right partner may be today and may not be tomorrow. And if you're not ready, then the opportunity is gone. So how should you think about the long-term future of your startup? So earlier, you start thinking about this uh, better for you, even if it's just like a mental you know, exercise. Uh, what would happen if some kind of like what-if analysis like, what would happen with the company if I if I die tomorrow, you know, and what would happen if I don't want to do this anymore? And what would happen if somebody purchased certain parts of it? Or what I would also suggest is uh, maybe learn to sell just part of your interest, you know, and then see what it what it actually does to you. So for example, if you have more products, you can dedicate a company you know for that only and sell the company maybe keep the core team there and, and try to figure out what it does to you as a team have the storyline aligned with your potential acquisition partner maybe not from the beginning but at, let's say in the third fourth year of your um, startup and kind of fine-tune to that particular end as uh, it's much more safer maybe the Valuations will not be that high if you have it open freely on the market. But honestly, most of the companies, they just end up in this kind of a middle where, uh, where either nobody wants them or 
they don't want to sell. So and then eventually they die. So Daniel takes an approach to buy and sell based on your intentions, learning that you have the power to build and destroy. Or think of it as kind of an investment. You know, when you are investor, at least in your head, you work with the risk profiles and risk management, right? So when you are having multiple portfolio of shares or on whatever trading platform, it's not only about buying, it's also about selling, right? Even though the prices might not be correct because just you need money for whatever mortgage or food or something. And with the, with the company, it's exactly the same thing. You know, maybe it's just enough and you want to move to the, I don't know, to live with your family or start a new life somewhere. And you know the company could be better off you know, in two or three years, you know, four times bigger. But again, it will eat up your time and maybe you just miss that girl which wanted to go with you, you know, and live with you and having a family and having everything at once sometimes is not the best choice. Buying and selling, you know, learn to buy, learn to build, but learn to discard, learn to sell, learn to destroy as well. You know, that's the most important. But I mean, from your own intentions, you know, not let the outside destroy you, but learn when you build something, you know, learn that you can destroy yourself. So you know what it takes. And if you don't like this, well, your investors will. If you work with most of the VCs, uh, I mean, they are sharks, you know, they want to give money back to LPs. They have their own targets. They want to, you know, repay to stay in the business for management fees. So for them, it's just like another financial asset. How does an acquisition work and when can it happen? I mean, each company has different stages, obviously, you know, from the idea concept to prototype to first customers, you know, first distribution channel, some kind of a strategic partnership and maybe maybe the exit. And from the mental perspective, it's the same thing. Like when you grow up and you have a few friends and then you have a family and then eventually you move on to another world. I think in each of these stage, certain merger or acquisition or the end of the story is different. So um, let's say the worst case scenario is you run out of the money, you are still having a hype in your topic and you want to continue and you simply can't because of the problem you were solving was not big enough or it was too early on the market. The second one, you have enough capital, but you don't know how to grow, let's say internally the team, you know, most of the companies, they end up uh, because of their hiring spree and not creating enough, you know, company cultures. So people are changing too fast and the company is kind of eaten up from inside. Another one is um, you build specific, perfect uh, technology product, uh, but you don't know how to sell it. It's very common in this part of the world as we are very technical and we need a lot of help in terms of marketing and sales. And usually that ends up either by selling, you know, IP, which is a good thing, or, I mean, a good thing for you as the founder because the upside and valuations are higher, or you basically sell the team for as it is, uh, as an acquire thing. Uh, you just calculate the value out of the people you have and roles you have. If you move company to beyond the Series A, Series B, you have enough capital to make your own purchases and make your own strategic alliances with other companies. Eventually, the holy grail for most of the founders could be an IPO, so the public market um, uh, output and actually skimming the the price of the share out of the people uh, publicly on NASDAQ or somewhere else. So 
So the first touch point is when you welcome first investors, right? You sell partially, sell uh, the shares of the company and you are having this wanted, unwanted child and investors who want to either push the company or kind of manipulate it sometimes. So they think, okay, that's, that's like a divorce. And the same thing applies with the mergers and acquisitions. So some of them could be very negative in terms that actually the competition is buying. Uh, some of them are afraid that uh, due diligence process is very, you know, throw out and, and, and detailed and no NDA can guard their, you know, unique IP. So maybe the competition will get to that. So it's very um, slow and I would say not that narrow process for most of the, especially tech or product driven people as a founder. The legal processes involved include due diligence and creating a term sheet. In the same way, when an investment occurs, when an acquisition or merger begins, the potential acquirer will issue a term sheet. This can also be called a letter of intent or memorandum of understanding. A term sheet is a non-binding legal document, usually signed before due diligence and preparation of complete investment documentation, or before other complete contracts are concluded. Both parties conclude and confirm consensus on the most important business conditions. After the term sheet is issued, a due diligence process will run on the startup. This involves the investor checking the situation in the startup from a legal, financial and sometimes technological point of view. The startup will make available the relevant documents that are reviewed by the investor. The process is faster if the startup is ready, so if the documents are scanned and in the final signed version, saved and sorted, and this is sometimes in what is called a data room. The main areas of legal due diligence are intellectual property rights, corporate structure and documents and contracts with key suppliers and customers. When an acquisition does occur, how can culture be affected? I think you can divide founders into few categories. So but one of them is like this kind of age and experience level. So you have either young founders who want to change the world and, and maybe end up in a uh, with investors' money, um, cashless, and then you have uh, founders around 35 who already been through you know this enterprise level experience, and they spin off their ideas, start their own businesses, become semi or very successful, and they are very abundant to sell it back to the enterprise. So they know why they left, and then they are back again in their arms of their mother in a few years. Um, the only difference is that they have a um, let's say cash in their pockets, but still have to survive two, three years. From what I know and what is my experience, usually the founders leave and the people they took from the enterprise, they usually stay with the, let's say, exchange shares from the mother company to the, to the startup company. So they are kind of a better off as they would stay, let's say, in working for Oracle for most of the time. Usually it works very well when, let's say, the bigger technology company buys a smaller startup, but the technology company was significantly growing in the last few years. And actually a few years ago, it was a, a startup itself. So the culture clash is not there. But when the enterprise level is kind of an old dinosaurs buys a small scaling fast startup mentality, you know, team, there are always uh, problems, I think. Why do exits occur in the CEE region? And is it in anything specifically? It's like a technology play. You get the company to a certain level and then you sell the technology to bigger guys. 
that happened to Apiary, to Oracle, that happened to guys who sold the, the companies to Cisco. So, and these companies are looking at the region to purchase, you know, for low valuations, uh, quite good technical teams and kind of trying to embed them into their structures. If you're building, let's say, a connector to a Shopify marketplace, and it, it would become eventually very significant in, in the custom attraction, that would, that would be the best case scenario of an acquisition that actually Shopify will buy mm. that particular connector and eventually it will become a part of the core product. Um, but usually Shopify doesn't do it the same way MailChimp doesn't do it. So it's, it's kind of hard, honestly. And it's case by case. All the stories you read in Forbes, like I think are half true. <laughs> and the other half people are keeping for themselves because it's very time and nerve and everything exhausting even though at the end you have this nice story of uh, having millions in your pocket you may be wondering what happens to the founders after big tech acquisitions i think uh, the apr story here in the region is a, from the friend of mine Jakub Neshetshir was exactly this story you know they've been trying to build a blueprint for apis for developers networks and they've been quite successful but on the other hand i think they came too early and for them, it was like a blessing that Oracle actually came and the valuation has been made in such high, um, so the expectations have been met. If you buy the revenue and you buy from the competitor, you usually cut off the whole product team and you keep just the customers. But when you, and that's not much happening here, but when you buy the product and when you buy the technology, you basically don't have the know-how, right? So you need still like a technical team, for example, who does the rollouts to the end customer base of support or who maybe, you know, develops the product further. And for that, you need a team and probation time uh, for the team to stay. During the acquisition agreements, the acquirer and startup would decide how long the founders will work with a new company post-acquisition. This cooperation is a mixture of both an incentive to stay and detriments to prevent founders leaving too soon after the acquisition. The benefits agreed could be additional equity in the new venture, for example. This could be balanced with a vesting period, which needs to be completed to gain access to the shares. Reverse vesting can also occur, creating an obligation on the founders to resell a part or all of their shares to the other co-founders in the event of them leaving the company before a certain period of time. In comparison to vesting, reverse vesting applies to existing shares owned by the founders. The reason for this carrot and stick approach is to keep founders around, to prevent knowledge or direction which made the startup successful to reach exit being lost. Alternatively, if the company is big enough, then the company can create entrepreneurs to continue the company story. If you build the company big enough, like these guys in Avast, you know, the antivirus, then they can outperform everybody and start, you know, buying companies themselves. And then the founders overhand the management to the let's say, internal uh, employees and the employees can actually become, you know, CXOs and CEOs. But again, it was some kind of exit for them as well because they have external investors and then they went IPO. And now they are, well, like they pivoted away from the company, even though they are, let's say, minority shareholder. And by the way, people think of investors or mergers uh, as it has to be 100%, which is not the case. But mergers and acquisitions do not just have to concern one mother company. It can also concern partnerships to allow the company to evolve and reach new markets. 
I mean, you want to enter, let's say, Brazilian market. And for that, you need a partner because of whatever cultural differences. And for that particular purpose, you can create a, like a joint venture company with this partner. And uh, not being touched the mother company, but having experience what it takes to have a partner, you know, for the scaling purposes or business purposes only. When you are the founder of the small, let's say, startup, you have to do everything yourself. And then just to dedicate the responsibilities, it's very hard for some. And as soon as the company grows, you have to dedicate the responsibility in terms of the cup table as well, you know, letting other investors in or other important employees in. And it's, it's sometimes very hard for the founder to digest. So the bottom line is that you are going to receive a lot of support about starting out. Like there are a lot of accelerators and, and, and let's say support the founders from this early stage. But don't forget, one aspect of that is thinking of the long term and considering the end or exit of your startup in the beginning. And then there is a blank space on how to actually build sustainable businesses and eventually successfully sell it. After all, if your startup is as wildly successful as it deserves to be, you're unlikely to be in it alone when you reach that success. You can build anything very cheaply. Uh, software is commodity, you have no code platforms and people can do a lot of sketching in Figma and, and you know showing prototypes on anything and all the time, get initial traction of customers. But sometimes the end of the story is also important. You know, you have to be educated yourself the same way as you ended up any relationship. You know, if you've already gone through that, you can avoid mistakes, right? So make sure to make both short-term and long-term strategic decisions from day one. This podcast is created by Sparring, the legal and strategic service for tech visionaries.